I'm Mark Olson, and this is The Real, a podcast where culture and entertainment meet. I write about movies here at The Times, and a frequent topic of conversation among my colleagues on the entertainment staff is how tough it is for any of us to just keep up with the relentless wave of content between movies and TV. So this show is about the stuff that we're watching and how we watch it. I grew up not really seeing myself on TV. And with One Day at a Time, that's my family. The emails and the tweets that we get from people, it's so touching. It's so beautiful. And uh, I got to be a part of that in my career. And I hope I get to do something that meaningful again. The Times' Yvonne Villarreal spoke with the showrunners for the recently canceled Netflix show One Day at a Time. Emotions and opinions were strong. Is diversity and inclusiveness really happening in Hollywood? Does the cancellation signal that the American Latinx experience is being erased from the airwaves? What happens when a show is more than just a show? We'll hear that interview in a moment. Then later on, six years after Spring Breakers, Harmony Crin is back with a new film, The Beach Bum, out now in theaters. The wildly creative filmmaker and fine artist is a teller of modern-day tall tales, something of a cross between a burnout Mark Twain and Andy Warhol of the Florida Keys. Corinne talks with me about skirting autobiography in his work, the casting choices he made for The Beach Bum, like Matthew McConaughey, Martin Lawrence, Snoop Dogg, and Jimmy Buffett, and how he feels about being a perennial Hollywood outsider. Let's listen in. One Day at a Time is one of only a few shows centered around Latinx characters. The Netflix series has tackled political issues like immigration, racism, homophobia, and mental illness. But about a month after season three was released, Netflix announced it was canceling the show. I'm here in the studio with my colleague, Yvonne Villarreal, who recently spoke with One Day at a Time showrunners Gloria Calderon-Kellett and Mike Royce. Yvonne, can you give us sort of a thumbnail of what's going on with the new version of One Day at a Time? So One Day at a Time in February released its third season, and it's very much a critically acclaimed show. doesn't get much awards buzz, but critics love this show. And it's sort of been on the quote-unquote bubble for the last couple of years because it's a weird thing to say when you're talking about a Netflix show because... You don't really know what that exactly means in terms of viewership, like what the benchmark is to reach. So maybe a month after launch, Gloria was on Twitter talking about a meeting with Netflix and the numbers aren't looking good. We need people to watch. She like put out this rallying tweet to get people to stream it. And a few weeks later, it was canceled. It is one of the sort of like unusual specifics of Netflix that... There's no way from the outside to know their viewer numbers. They don't have ratings. How do they compare to their other shows? Why do you think One Day at a Time in particular was getting this kind of pressure? Well, it's hard to know what factors Netflix is taking in when making these decisions. The creators don't know what the viewership level is. They are kept in the dark just like us. And because Netflix relies on subscriptions, not so much ad dollars, it's one of those things where maybe they're taking the budget of the show into consideration. Maybe they're taking in whether it's got a lot of awards acclaim, at least, helping it. And this isn't a show that's been nominated for Emmys. So you have to wonder, like, what is it exactly? Is it a budget thing? What's going on here? Because, in fact, when Netflix canceled the show, they announced this 
via Twitter to a broader audience, and they mentioned specifically that the numbers just weren't there. But then part of the reason this show seems like it matters more than just sort of the average Netflix show is because it's one of the few Latinx representation shows that they have. And they specifically said in that series of tweets that to anyone who felt seen or represented, please don't take this as an indication your story is not important. And that felt like a weird slap in the face, I think, to a lot of people. It did. A lot of people did not take well to that other part of the statement. It's one thing to just say the numbers weren't there and leave it at that. And that's something I talked about with the co-showrunners, Mike Royce and Gloria Calderon-Kellett. It was a tone-deaf kind of thing. That is why it hurts, because there's such a starvation for that kind of representation on TV. And to eliminate something like that, it's bigger than just a cancellation of a show. It feels like you're taking away something that people have longed for. I mean, we're losing Jane the Virgin, too. That's another show that's centered on a Latinx family. And so to to now be be without two shows that offer that, it's it's a big blow. I know when you were talking to Gloria Calderon-Kellett and Mike Royce, did you get a sense that this is more than just a television show to them, that they recognize what this show means to a larger audience and that somehow it's become almost like a sense of mission for them to sort of like keep this show alive. During our conversation, Gloria got very emotional. This is a show that, you know, is largely inspired by her family. This remake of this classic sitcom, she modeled it after her Cuban family. So that for her was a personal connection. And then to the larger audience, I mean, I grew up not really seeing myself on TV. There were characters that felt like me, that I felt close enough to, oh, I'm kind of like that person. But it's a whole other dimension to really see yourself on the screen. I feel like that didn't happen for me until Betty Suarez in, like, Ugly Betty. And now Jane on Jane the Virgin. And with this show, I saw my family. Like, on one day at a time, like, Penelope, that was my mom. The working woman, like, trying to keep food on the table while putting her kids in school. And Lydia, that was my grandma. The way she talked, you know, the mannerisms. To have, like, that level of detail to really see your family, it's a whole other thing. And a lot of people take that for granted. Like, I'm sure you saw yourself (laughs) a lot on TV or could imagine yourself as people. And for the Latinx community... There's not a lot of representation in TV and film. And if it is, it's usually the stereotypes. So to see a family that's really grounded in reality, just trying to get through the day, just trying to be good people, trying to raise good people, that's a real loss. And that's why they're, you know, Gloria and Mike are really fighting to find another home for the show. Do you see this as something of a test case not just for one day at a time, but what the new kind of television ecosystem might be looking like. The fact that this show was produced by Sony, but was put out by Netflix. Now they have these complications of trying to kind of get the show back. It seems like that's a new sort of set of complications. Like, do you think this will be something we'll be seeing more of in the future? Perhaps. I mean, it is a different dynamic today. And just the fact that they have hope that they could find a home elsewhere is something also that we're just sort of seeing. It feels like it happens all the time, but it is a rare case when a show gets picked up somewhere else. So, yeah, there's a whole lot of new stuff going on in this world of TV right now. 
And so now let's go to Yvonne's interview with Gloria Calderon-Kellett and Mike Rice. But so it's been a few weeks. Couple weeks. Couple weeks. <laughs> How are you feeling? I'm feeling cautiously optimistic. That's yeah. how I'm feeling. Yeah, yeah. That's me too. Yeah. There's something can be done and hopefully it will be done. Walk us back through when you sort of got an indication that there was something to be concerned about. You need to spread the word a little more. Talk about those conversations. On Sunday, I had some friends over and I said, it's always a little bit felt like I'm dating the cool guy who's not that into me. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of felt that way. Mm -hmm. Like he'll bring me to the dance, but not hang out with me. (laughs) And he's not really telling people, but when we're alone, he like loves me so much. (laughs) And so I love it. But then like when we're out, he kind of ignores me. So it's, it's always felt a little bit like that. And you know, the cool guy gave me a lot of opportunity. I became so much more popular. Mm -hmm. And when we're alone, it's magical. So a part of the breakup was, okay, like I'm heartbroken, but also feeling like maybe there's somebody who's going to love me for all of me and be really proud to tell people that I'm his girlfriend. That's what I'm saying. And give you all access. And give me. No, why would I say that? That's crazy. (laughs) That's just an expression people throw around. Uh Uh (laughs) How are you feeling? Well, I don't understand this cool guy metaphor at all. <laughs> just completely never been on the other side of that either way. I think that they never expected this show to become what it's become. And we've always been fighting to get ahead of where we started. I think they would say this. When the show began, they released it under the radar. We didn't have a Twitter account. We didn't have a Facebook account. I mean, all the other shows even have those things. And I just think they wanted it. Maybe their approach was multicams. They can get hit pretty hard for being cheesy. And let's just kind of let this grow and see if it goes somewhere like that. That's giving them sort of credit for the way the rollout was supposed to happen. And what happened was nobody knew the show was around. And then the critics all loved it. But the audience wasn't there in the beginning. And then since then, we've been starting from that low point because our numbers have gone up every year, which they told us, even though they don't tell us what the numbers are. And so I think that's been the fight. And we know that more and more people are seeing this show and liking it. And we know how many stories there are left to tell. So while it's frustrating that this happened, I feel good about like this should continue and there's a reason it should continue. And hopefully they'll see it that way, too. In what capacity did the sort of hint that something was awry this season feel different than past seasons? Because you've sort of been on this boat before with Mm -hmm. the show. How did it feel different? We had a meeting with them where it felt different. It just felt a little bit more like it was not going to go forward. It did. I think we all left going, I think, are we done? And that was my tweet. My tweet was exactly it. Like, I wish I felt more confident leaving there. It really felt like we love you and we... We love the show. We love making the show. We're proud of the show, but it hasn't gotten the viewers that we hoped. I mean, it's just common sense. This is not revealing any like internal Netflix info. They make their decision within a month or two. So it just stands to reason that they need to see the numbers within a month or two. And if you don't watch it in that period, they're not going to see that you like it. So the binge model giveth and taketh away. You have to binge it basically in some form. Our numbers went up this season and they went up. We had the meeting a few days right. and they said we were already 
pretty far ahead of last year's pace, but still not good enough. Well, let's talk about the Netflix sort of model of not sharing data. Um, in the in the very beginning, when this was sort of taking off, creators are very excited about this element or relieved about it, not having the pressure of seeing the overnights or the live plus three stuff like that. But we also see the drawbacks of not really knowing what those numbers are. What has that been like navigating? I feel like for me, I wouldn't mind never knowing as long as I can keep making it. Right. And really, I wouldn't care because we see the social media fans. We interact with them. We see that it's meaningful to them. And that's certainly enough for me. I don't need to know how many people are watching total. So if they've never told me, but let me keep making it, that would be fine. It's that it becomes incumbent on these numbers that you don't know what they mean. So you're being told that the numbers are bigger than they've been in the past, but it's also just not good enough this time. I mean, how were you making sense of that? Well, I mean, you can't. But the other thing, though, that's crazy, because I have so many friends on shows this year and then have shows this year. All the numbers are down. You know, like you look at shows that are doing well and it's like a point eight. Like these are numbers that would be ridiculous only a few years ago. So it's also like who is watching anything? Yeah. Uh, With this many shows, I just think that the margins are lower. So it's difficult to know. Like Mike said, it's difficult to have a set a goal for what the target is when you don't know what the target is. Okay, talk about the way you've used social media to sort of drum up some support, some buzz to get people coming and then talk about using social media when you got the word to say what you wanted to say about what this show did for you and for others. It's been incredible. I mean, this is a new phenomenon. The social media aspect is totally new for me. It's interacting with fans, getting to hear personal stories. All of that is incredibly meaningful. It's just not anything that existed when I was younger. Like had I been able to like tweet out at the creators of shows that I loved, it would have been unbelievable. So that aspect of it is so lovely. And then in turn, being able to reach out to them and be clear about we need more people to watch, tell people to watch and having them be so supportive and so loving. Look, shows get canceled every day. Our show got canceled and people freaked out and that doesn't feel terrible. It feels nice to know that you meant something to someone and that the storytelling that you worked really hard to make had an effect. We just want to keep doing it. It's great to put out stuff that the fans like, but it starts with them. When even the first season, when we started to see feedback, you're like, wow, a lot of people like this show and it affects them very personally. And that doesn't happen with every show, for sure. I've certainly been on shows where the social media reaction was not that positive. I can only imagine the onslaught of messages you got when you tweeted the news about what had happened. Because this wasn't just a cancellation of a show. Shows get canceled all the time. But this was eliminating a story that we don't often see, a family we don't often see on television. Well, I think there is a fallacy right now that diversity and inclusiveness is actually happening in Hollywood. This really is the year for me where it's like, oh, maybe it's not getting better because of the pilots that got picked up, because of the stories that networks specifically are choosing to put money behind. It does seem like there is still an erasure of the Latinx American experience. So to have one of the few shows, our show Vida and then Jane the Virgin, which is leaving the airwaves, it was meaningful to so many people, not just Latinx people, but I think immigrant families. A lot of them saw themselves through the lens of the Alvarez family of this show. 
So to see that and to also have just gone through pilot season myself where I had many Latinx projects that did not move forward, it was like, oh boy. So to see then the other nine, I think, Latinx created shows about the Latinx American experience also not get picked up. It made me a little sad in my heart because we take the responsibility very seriously and we want this community to feel seen. And especially in a time where we're being very demonized, we see our show as a salve of comfort and also kindness in a time that's not very kind. Well, talk about the opportunity to have a show inspired by your family. I'm really, really grateful that especially while my parents are alive, I got to show them this and that their sacrifice was not for nothing. Um, and I got to share it with them every week. And it was such a beautiful experience to get to do that. And the emails and the tweets that we get from people, it's so touching. It's so beautiful. And, uh, I got to be a part of that in my career, and I hope I get to do something that meaningful again. I feel so fortunate that I got to do it with this group of people, these actors, like the whole thing was such a blessing for me, truly. And it makes me emotional because I loved every moment of it. I really did. I loved every show night. I n None of it was ever lost on me. There was never a time that I walked into that set and I was like, oh my God, <laughs> like we write restaurant and they make a restaurant. Like it's amazing. Like the magic of all of it and the hundreds of employees we had and all of it. It was just a love fest. It really was. So I hope to carry that with me in everything that I do. But I love this family. I love it. And I see that it's important in this time to tell this type of story. And I hope other shows get to do that because I think it's important. We're earnest. These are people that love each other in a time when there's so much hatred and so much division. And it did seem like to have three very different points of view, a very traditional point of view, a very moderate point of view and a yeah. very liberal point of view. And those conversations being had in families allowed us to model the type of behavior we hope to see in other families and in people in general. What are some of the stories you're most proud you were able to tell? Oh, my gosh. Well, I mean, the coming out journey was unbelievable. I think that seeing over the course of many episodes this young woman, because I think like I'm a sister woman. I think that resonated with me in terms of like, I like boys. What does that mean? I'm going to try this. That was weird. Like, you know, it's, <laughs> it's really showing just a young woman in general going through coming to terms with her sexuality, whatever that may be. So I really, I saw myself through Elena as she was going down that road and being awkward around people she liked. And I mean, it all felt like something that we don't put a lot of focus on. I think stories about young women and their sexuality is often told through a different gaze. And I think that I loved seeing her entire journey and we're so proud. I loved her loss of virginity in season three. I thought that that was such a beautiful episode and how they talked about it and consent and love and why are we doing this? And I just thought it was all really powerful and all stuff that I never saw growing up. And I, I loved that. I obviously love all the mental health stuff we did with Penelope. It's such an issue in the Latinx community and in many communities of color. The recovery, Lydia's citizenship, so many. There's so many. Let's talk about where things stand right now with the show. You said in your statements that you're shopping it around. Where, How are things looking? What are some of the hiccups that you're finding? Well, we're hoping. I mean, it's pilot season right now, so it's a tricky time of year, I think. I think that right now all of the networks have a ton of possibilities. So I guess what it is is with networks, it's 120 days until right. we could go to a network. 
from when the show drops. So that would be mid-June. We could technically be picked up by a network. And then it's three years for another streaming service. That's who they see as their competitor, which I understand that. So what are your conversations like with the cast and crew about waiting or the status? Because I imagine that can be hard, too, because you obviously understand people have to get, get other work. Get of other course. Work. There is an actor hold and then we'll have to release them from that hold at some point. We obviously don't want to hold on to anyone if we think we're dead, but we're not dead. No. Mm-hmm. So did the conversation start immediately? Like once your tweets were off, were you already having conversations, scheduling calls? That's kind of what this studio is known for. And they immediately had that attitude. What lessons have you learned from this experience? Yeah, I, I got over being full of myself a few years ago when shows were getting canceled and I was like, I have to retweet every good review. And then people were like, why are you retweeting plays? I'm like, I'm trying to stay on the air. I'd be happy to get off of social media or just tweet some dumb joke if my show was going to survive. But I'm like, every any good thing that anybody says, you're going to see that on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter and uh, whatever else I should be on that I probably am neglecting. Because what's the reality of putting out a show right now? I mean, it's not something new that when you're launching a show, even on broadcast, there are some shows that get more promotion than others. That's not new. But it's different now in that there are so many shows out there. So many shows. So how do you even get seen? I mean, talk about what that struggle is like. Well, it's become so much about social media. There's so many shows. So I think the marketing budget for all of the shows has probably gone down with the exception of a few shows. And they really expect you to do a lot of it yourself. Is that unfair? Yes. But on the other hand, it's also how things are poking through now anyway. Traditional commercials certainly aren't what they used to be. You feel a little bit put upon that you have to like really advocate for yourself. But on the other hand, weird things happen now. You don't know where your viewers are going to come from. You don't know how you're going to get on people's radar. Something I wanted to discuss was Netflix statement when the show was canceled. I'll just read part of it for those who didn't see it. And to anyone who felt seen or represented, possibly for the first time, by one day at a time, please don't take this as an indication your story is not important. The outpouring of love for this show is a firm reminder to us that we must continue finding ways to tell those stories. A lot of people took issue with this (laughs) statement that it felt cowardly and somewhat tone deaf of the situation. How did you feel when you saw that portion? Mike? (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to say that I don't think that was their finest hour. I get where they were coming from, but I think people reacted the way they did because it was tone deaf. I mean, just no way around it. They were trying to have their cake and eat it too and made people madder than they would have been. Well, is there concern if things don't go the way you hope or even if they do, but given that the show was temporarily canceled, if that happens, is there concern that the next time you go pitch something that is centered on a Latinx characters that they're going to point to this as we don't know? Is it going to work? Do people want this? What do you hear from executives about what people want to see or what they don't or they don't show up or the claim is that people do want this but then i don't know if that's a reality i mean i know you know this but it's unfair it's obviously unfair millions of people watch christella Mm -hmm. a lot of other shows got the same ratings that she did 
And they took it off for whatever reason they took it off. But to say that somehow that's a failure of showing all that next experience and people don't want that is just obviously Crazy. wrong. And the same thing with our show. We know we don't know the numbers. We know millions of people watch this show. That's just all there is. We just know that we is know the that. truth. Uh, and people want and there are plenty of shows that uh, represent pasty white people like me who nobody's watching. And it's just not a, you know, we have to hopefully get beyond that. You know, it's it's infuriating to have that thought because, yes, I'm sure some people will make that connection. And it's a just completely wrong connection. Also, look, the larger thing is, does that deter me from wanting to tell these stories? No, no, it doesn't. It kind of makes me want to double down on it. Now, will they buy it for me? I don't know, but I'll keep trying. I'm very hard headed. Mike knows I won't <laughs> shut up. So I will keep trying. What have you heard from Norman Lear about this experience? He's been so loving. No one's ever loved a show like they've loved this show. And he's so blown away by the amount of love and the amount of press and the amount of kindnesses he receives. So there's possibility. What is that like knowing there is some hope out there? This is my third Save Our Show campaign. Now done a drama, a single cam, and now a multi-cam. This one is different because this one has wildly more people who are invested in it. This time is when these things can happen. There is no reason when there's 500 shows and all these burgeoning streaming services and ratings are all over the place, both streaming and on network, there is no reason why a show has to be dinged for maybe not quite reaching a certain bar. You're providing a good thing for society and for viewers, and you're also creating a sense of goodwill amongst your audience base. I think anybody would be on board with the thought that you it's not just about literally the highest ratings that you can get. There are business people who are far smarter than me, but I think we're living in this time where there's got to be a place as long as somebody's watching, there is a giant community of people that's watching this show. And if it's not enough for Netflix, I feel like it's going to be enough for somebody. Well, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. So for season four, I just yeah. need to know, Lydia comes back, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yes, she comes back. I just want her back. And that was Yvonne Villarreal talking to Gloria Calderon Kellett and Mike Royce, showrunners for the new One Day at a Time. And we'll be right back with my interview with filmmaker Harmony Corinne. <laughs> the Beach Bum is, quote, a quasi sequel to Spring Breakers. Harmony Corinne's blistering 2013 ode to youthful American hedonism and its discontents, said the Times film critic Justin Chang. And as Corinne told me, The Beach Bum is, quote, a movie for people who want to check out and enjoy the ride. So here's my conversation with the writer and director. Harmony, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for being here. It's good to see you. Your previous film, Spring Breakers, set in Florida... Your new film, The Beach Bum, set in Florida. And in between those two films, you moved to Florida. What is the appeal? I just like it, mainly South Florida. I mean, I like the whole state's interesting, but 
I live in Miami and I kept a small house there where I used to go away to write and hang out for vacations and stuff. And then over the course of the last couple of years, my family and I just kind of like being there and the weather's really nice and I find a place intriguing and kind of beautiful to look at and hard to define. It's closer almost to like Latin America in a lot of ways. And I like the proximity to the Keys is cool and I just kind of like love the place. And so I started setting my last couple of films there. And do you feel like the movies, The Beach Bum in particular, represent something about Florida? Like, what is it you think you're expressing about Florida with The Beach Bum? I like hanging out in the Keys and having friends down there and this kind of celebration of this idea of almost like a lack of ambition or something. Like this idea of just tuning out and kind of like cutting off and not really paying attention to the rest of the states. It has this kind of strange cosmic separation and like how eccentric everyone is. And I was intrigued by this idea of people living on houseboats and this whole houseboat culture and getting high and staring at the stars. And there was just something kind of intoxicating about it. The movie's kind of set there in the kind of wildness of the Keys and also some in Miami. And his character is based on a kind of composite of these Keys rats. And it's been a few years since Spring Breakers. What have you been doing in between? I think you had at least one other film project that you were kind of working on that that fell apart. Yeah, I almost made this other movie called The Trap, and we were really close to shooting it. It was a pretty ambitious film, but totally different than Beach Bum. It was a super violent revenge film that takes place in Miami. It's about the rap world there. And then at the end, it was so many actors and so many things, and the schedules kind of got really complicated. So we pushed back a year, and I didn't want to wait. And I also, at that point, wanted to laugh. I wanted to make something different. And so that's when I sat down. Instead of waiting, I was like, I'm going to make kind of like my Cheech and Chong movie. Earlier in your career, between Julian Donkey Boy and Mr. Lonely, you sort of have had a gap between yeah. some movies as well. Does this feel different from then? Yeah, I mean, I'm not super prolific with films. I'm pretty slow, and it takes me a while to figure out like what I love and what I'm interested in. And I also do other things. I make artwork and paint, and that started to take on a bigger part of my life in the last couple of years. And then also just try to like hang out. And then can you tell me a little bit more about your fine artwork? Like, Is there some relationship between your painting and your movies? Yeah, I mean, I think it's all kind of unified. There's some kind of unified aesthetic, or the two things like dance with each other in some ways, but they're separate as well. I think there's a relationship in just colors and maybe the vibe and the textures, but subject-wise, they're pretty different. Does one feel like more of like a pure expression somehow? I kind of, over the last couple of years, prefer making artwork. I like writing. I like just making stuff. I've always done it. But there's something also nice about being able to just be in your studio and kind of trip out and just make something alone. How would you describe your relationship to like Hollywood and sort of conventional filmmaking? Do you feel like you have any relationship to that at all? I mean, not so much. I do things here. I'll come here and I have to edit here, you know, meet with actors. I've never lived here. I've always kind of felt somewhat separated from it, like everyone's obsession with like awards. I never really understood that. But at the same time, I can say you're part of it because you're part of the community of people making films. And at the same time, I've always been removed from it. So you're like of it, but also not in it. Could you see yourself ever making like an Avengers movie or like yeah. something like the kind of things that it seems like a lot of directors sort of have to do yeah. these days. Would you, would you want to do yeah, something that? Yeah, like that would be fun. <laughs> what would that look like? I don't know. It would be crazy. Uh, but no, I'm open to things. Up until this point, I've only ever like written and directed my own films, but I'm not opposed to something like that. Because it seems like, especially after the success of Spring Breakers, 
I was just wondering if you felt a sense of momentum or if there were doors that opened for yeah. you because of that. And did you sort of consciously pull away from that? No, I mean, it's all good. I just work at my own pace, really. There's a specific things that I want to see in a certain way, and it takes me a while to figure it out. And to like making a movie, especially when you're writing them, it's a commitment. It takes years. And I still have a family, and it's a kind of balance. And now we're recording this conversation in Los Angeles, and while you're here, there's been a retrospective of your work at the American Cinematheque that you've been attending. People are showing your old yeah. work when you have to talk about your old work. Yeah. What is that like for you? No, it was cool. I mean, like last night, they showed the gummo at the Egyptian. It was fun. It was like all kids. As a director, you don't really have so much contact with the audience. It's not like you're like a singer. So it's always fun to watch reactions and to see people's expressions and also what the movies mean to people or something. And then it's even nicer when they're films that you've made a long time ago that still seem to have some type of resonance. It's cool. Because in particular with Kids, the first film that you wrote that really sort of established you on the scene, what do you think of Kids now? I've heard you say before that you think it's a movie that could never get made yeah. today. What do you make of it now? The film itself, it's amazing that it exists. And when I think back on it, it was like another lifetime ago because we were all just kids when we made it. And every single person I think involved, it was their first thing. And mostly we like met in Washington Square Park, just hanging out. And so it's just this crazy thing that happened. It's this moment, it captured this moment in youth culture. But it couldn't get made now just because the story could never work now because people have phones. So you couldn't spend a whole movie trying to find somebody, you know, like going walking from place to place. You would just like text somebody. You can't really get lost in America anymore. When it came out, it was accepted as this almost like documentary yeah. report from the front lines of youth culture. And it's so interesting to me that so much of your work since then has had this element of being a bit of a fable. Mm -hmm. Sometimes like your storytelling has not been right. as authentic as it is right. in kids. Do you still think of kids as like an authentic movie or should we think about it more in line with like the more sort of fictionalized stories that you've been telling since then? I didn't direct the movie, so it was, I wrote it. So at that time, it was meant to feel real, look real, be based on real people and things. But obviously, it wasn't a documentary. It was a fictionalized story. It kind of heightened reality. With my own work, it was always different in that I wasn't really obsessed with this idea of like realness or like truth or not even documentary. It was a, I've always been more interested in this idea of a kind of sensory filmmaking or something that's closer to a kind of strange poetry or something like the real world pushed into something kind of hyper magical. And what is it that you like about that? It's something that's more maybe it can be more enlightening, let's say. Because your style of storytelling, it is so fluid and yeah. maybe anecdotal in yeah. a way. And I feel like you see that in Gummo. You see that now in The Beach Bum. And then I remember when Spring Breakers was coming out, you like to talk about it as being this liquid narrative. Yeah. And do you feel like The Beach Bum is in yeah. that same style? Yeah, I, th I think so. I mean, I think I say liquid narrative, it's, it's about, it's almost like capturing like energy. And it has to do with like rhythms and looping and a kind of deconstructing narrative a little bit. The Beach Bomb is similar in some of the technique, but the story is so different that it's a different film, but it still uses a similar language. Would you say that your writing process is the same for both movies? Yeah, I pretty much write the same. I pretty much try to write very quickly and then start to riff based on the script, ideas and locations and starting to cast characters and actors and put them all on somewhere and then it becomes almost like a kind of form of music. And then I think in 
both films and in the Beach Boys in particular, the casting seems like such a big part of like what makes the movie. Like, at what point were you thinking of Matthew McConaughey for the role of Munda? I just think he's a, such a good actor and he's really funny and he has this kind of stoner mythology to him in real life, which was fun because Moondog has that. So I liked kind of playing with the mythology of that. And he has a very similar vibe to Moondog. And is it a challenge for you to just get your script to someone like him? No, it wasn't. I think he got the script and he kind of like recognized the character and people he'd met, pirates and smugglers and dudes hanging out in the Caribbean. And then the rest of the cast as well. First of all, I have to ask about Jimmy Buffett as Jimmy Buffett. How do you come to cast him in your movie? I love Jimmy Buffett just like as a person, he's a friend of mine and, and I hang out with him in Florida a bunch. And, but I always liked the idea of like in his music, he created a world and a fantasy that people can tap into. This like narrative that kind of surrounds the whole Margaritaville thing and parrot heads and trying to think who would Moondog hang out with, who would be his posse down there. Like Jimmy Buffett was definitely part of his kind of orbit. And now how does Harmony Corinne meet Jimmy Buffett? That's a good question. I think I met him on some island or something uh, <laughs> somewhere. And then some of the other people in the movie as well, Martin Lawrence, yeah. I think is really terrific in yeah. the movie. Again, are you picturing him yeah. pretty early on when yeah. you're writing? Yeah, Martin was so specific in that I'm, I wrote this part for a character named Captain Wack who plays the world's worst dolphin tour guide in the Keys. Guy who has like Vietnam flashbacks but never went to Vietnam, has a cocaine-addicted parrot, lives out on a houseboat and wears like a sailor suit. And so I was like, who would be the greatest if you can have anyone to play this part? And I was such a fan of his. He's always like one of my favorite comedians and I hadn't seen him in anything in a while. So it was just, that was like a kind of interesting thing and that I'd never met him, talked to him or anything. And like, I was just, it was a shot in the dark and I was like, I really hope he responds. And he responded to that part and it kind of became in some ways that sequence is my favorite sequence in the movie. And here's a clip with Martin Lawrence and Matthew McConaughey. I bought a second boat. Yeah. Yeah. Named it Success. I just take tours to the Outer Key. When they see a dolphin, I act all stoked, right? Oh, it's a dolphin. Look at the baby dolphin. Look. Tell them to dive in. Make sure they don't drown. Only had four deaths on my watch. Only four? Four deaths in over eight straight years of dolphin touring. It's a terrific record. Now, I've been stripped of my license temporarily on five separate occasions. But each time I get it reinstated due to a technicality I never quite understood. <laughs> it's beyond luck or karma, man. I'm blessed up, bro. Meant to be. And then what is your directing style like? Like, how do you like to work with actors? You know, like a film like this, because everyone is pretty much stoned the whole movie. A lot of it had to do with like creating an environment or a buzz almost so that everyone could ride this rhythm. So a lot of it had to do with like music, characters, people involved, almost like a chemical reaction that you put people in these places and these specific scenarios and then you kind of just like let it go. You have the script and then sometimes it goes past the script and into something extra. And is that true of say like the scenes with Snoop Dogg? Yeah, it's really with everyone. Snoop is the same way, but it's pretty much with everyone. You kind of try to like create this environment, keep it loose and seems improvised. Like I like when you don't know where one thing begins and then the other thing ends and they all just kind of come coalesce. Do you like the sort of the dissonance of the fact that you have all these like unexpected people in the movie that you have Zac Efron and Snoop Dogg and Jimmy Buffett all in this same movie? Yeah, that's fun. I mean, again, for this movie, too, where McConaughey's character is almost like a cipher for all these eccentrics, it's great because you just want to put them all together and kind of see what happens. And then the movie has this kind of lyrical quality to it and a touch of melancholy. Where where does that come from? 
I'd grown up on like Cheech and Chong movies and like kind of like classic stoner films and even Rodney Dangerfield movies. I wanted to touch on that, but also give it heart and some type of melancholy. It's also like goes from screwball comedy to melancholy. And it was just something I was feeling. It's something that like I felt like it was a good time to try to play with it. I feel like both with some of your earlier films, like with Trash Humpers or Spring Breakers, both those movies like felt so specific and like about their kind of cultural moment. Mm -hmm. And do you feel like that's true of the Beach Bum as well? I'm of the culture and I'm removed from it. I try to like pay attention to things, but also it's hard to know what's going on. So it really is, it's a checkout movie. The movie is like for people who are just like, it, I'm checking out and like, I'm just going to enjoy the ride. And you accept it. You accept it like he's a flawed character and he does things that are crazy and stuff like that. But in the moment, he's just trying to be like a poet of life. He's trying to make it happen. He's trying to enjoy the ride. But what do you think that has to say about right now? I feel like uh, at some point, it's just nice to just to hang out, get stoned. And let's get a little taste of that with this clip featuring Matthew McConaughey and Isla Fisher. You are shaking, little ginger goat. I miss you. Oh, I miss you too, sweetie. Well, it's boring here without you. I know, right? I can only imagine. Well, I need you back here in Miami. I need my husband. Yeah. Civilization. Come on, and I need help with the wedding. Well, I mean, do you really? Heather and I need you to come back home. Ah, you know my home's down here in the Keys with all the burnouts, sweetie. I'm a bottom feeder. I gotta go low to get high. You know that. And to what extent is Moondog you? Is there any autobiography in this? You know, people have asked me that. I think there's maybe little bits or something, you know, writing it or so. Maybe it's a fantasy in some ways or something. I mean, if you look at his life and my life, they're so different. So, but he's like, if one joint is good, then why not smoke 10? The poetry that Moondog writes, that actually comes from other poets? Like some of it, I think, is Richard Brodigan? There's like one Richard Brodigan poem, I think, that he reads, and then a couple others that he plagiarizes in there, like D.H. Lawrence and that scene with Snoop where he gets really stoned out by the wedding and he starts doing that poem. Snoop starts crying, but then he says, I actually just plagiarized it. And then there's a couple that are like his, yeah. And then are you a poetry fan? Like what made you want to make Moondog a poet? I'm not like a super poet enthusiast or I'm not really up on it. And I think Moondog, the interesting thing about his character is that he's a poet, let's say, because he's like the crudest poet. It's this idea that like everyone's like, you're a genius, you're a genius, but he has no authority over his genius. It's like an appendage. He doesn't really want it or care about it, which is always fun to watch someone try to just throw it all away. But is that one of the things that makes people think that this is about you? Like, do you feel that way about yourself? <laughs> That you're trying to like maybe run away from your own talent no. or from your art? No, because I make stuff. I'm not like running away. I'm active with staying creative and stuff. But however someone wants to interpret it, whether it's about me, it's good. It's all good. There's no real right or wrong. Because I know it's always been kind of a thing with you and your movies that you're reluctant to sort of ascribe meaning yeah. to them or just yeah. say what they're like sure. in capital A yeah. about. Yeah. How do you deal with that? Is yeah. that something you just sort of had to learn to like answer but not answer those questions? Yeah, it's just like I feel like as a person who makes them, I do a disservice to it to prescribe too much meaning. It's not didactic. I'm not setting out to try to like prove points. This is what I'm trying to do or this is what I meant to say. Or this, I like to let the films just breathe and let them be kind of open to specific interpretation. I don't really ever argue reactions. And so what makes a given movie for you a success? 
but just making them, you know, they're so hard to make. It's like the, the success is just in their existence. So when people like them and I, and I want people to enjoy them, so it's like a bonus. But I think it's just like the success is just in making things, putting them out there. You initially appeared in the, the 90s. At that point in time, the idea of like selling out was like a really right. big thing that a lot yeah. of people were really uptight yeah. about. And it seems like people aren't as uptight about that anymore. Yeah. And I'd read an interview with you from 1995 that you did critic Roger Ebert, and you specifically said that you'd rather quit than be corrupted. Yeah. And do you still feel that way? Well, I think corruption of soul is really the thing. Like you said, I don't really think there's even a thing of selling out. I think kids now almost just like strive to sell out. Or I don't even know if selling out even means anything because... There's no real underground culture anymore in the way that there used to be. And it's not even necessarily a bad thing. It's just the way that it is. It's just things are either interesting or not interesting. So when I said that I was probably like a kid, I was like 20 or something. But in some ways, it still makes sense to me in that like I would rather stop making anything than be corrupt of heart. But when you do some of your more commercial work, like yeah. music videos or you've shot some ad campaigns, does that still feel like something that you, Harmony, are doing for you? Or does that feel like a job? Well, I think you can do both. I shoot stuff all the time. And it's sometimes it's nice to make beautiful images, just to make, just to create things that are interesting looking or feel. I don't like shy away from that. If I can contribute something if I can, and I can enjoy and have fun doing that, I, I go for it. Because your work is, and your movies especially, like you were saying, they're so based in like feeling and like a sensual quality uh -huh. like of the senses. It totally makes sense to me that you would do an ad campaign or a music yeah. video. It somehow yeah. all falls together in like an interesting way. I mean, hopefully the idea is that it's all part of something that's unified, that it all kind of, it comes from the same place. So even if it's an ad or something that it's still like, I'm making something that you could still see that has my fingerprint on it. Because I'd seen something where you'd said how you don't really watch as many movies now as you did yeah. when you were younger. How do you feel like your relationship to movies has changed? When I was younger, that's all I did was watch movies and make movies and think about them. And like over the years, it's just like I go less and less. I think about them less and less. I'm always thinking about making them. But I like, I don't really see all the stuff that everybody sees. And I'm not as excited about a lot of things. I'm always wanting, waiting. But yeah, I go to the movies barely now. It's strange. And do you even watch stuff at home? Like, are you part of like streaming culture? Yeah, I mean, mostly I'd like go fishing or like I have this little boat in Key Largo and I like get a bunch of Taco Bell Crunchwrap Supremes and a couple liters of Mountain Dew. And I bought these electronic poker machines. And so I can just sit out there and get all soupy and just I, uh, I feel good. And that's kind of like where I need to be. <laughs> can you think of what the last movie that you saw was? Yeah, the last movie that was a new movie that I saw. Yeah. I think I saw something on the airplane. I think it, well, no, that was just like an episode of Beavis and Butthead or something. <laughs> you said you feel like you're both like a part of popular yeah. culture and outside of yeah. popular culture. Do you feel like you've always been like that? Or has your sort of like relationship to popular culture changed? Maybe it's changed, but I don't know. Maybe not. Again, it's strange. I don't really like think about, I don't really know, actually. I don't really think about myself that much. But what's your kind of inputs now like do you feel like you still listen to this certain kinds of music yeah. or like i'm wondering like yeah. how like the so the cultural references and things that are yeah. in a movie like beach bum or sure. spring breakers yeah like how are you finding no, those things? no I, I like listen to lots of music and yeah i don't listen to the radio i pay attention i'm not shut off i like definitely pay attention maybe what i'm saying is like there's less and less that i see that's exciting that's probably what i mean but then there are things i mean yeah there's stuff 
Because how much do you feel like your own life is expressed in your movies? Like, especially considering now, like, you're married, you have a yeah. family. Like, it seems like you should be in a more sort of settled place <laughs> and you're still making movies like The Beach Bomb. Uh, yeah, it's true. That's just me, I guess. I guess, I mean, for me, The Beach Bomb is kind of settled, you know? Yeah. How so? It's a story about a guy who's just trying to, like, find his place. He's trying to make his way through the world. And even though he's a disruptor, I think he's he's entertaining. Well, Trevor Harmony, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank, Thank you. Thank you for taking some time while you're here in Los Angeles. Thank you, bro. And uh, so for LA Times Studios and The Real, I'm Mark Olson. This week's episode has been produced by Katie Cooper and edited by Mike Heflin. Thanks for listening. And let's go out with a little more of The Beach Bum. But I wish you could see Heather. Oh, my goodness. She's just glowing and so glowing? happy about the wedding, baby. Why is she glowing? It's because she's so in love. Ah, sh- you scared me for a minute. But what does she know about love anyway? She's 16 years old. She doesn't know what love is. She's too young to get married. She's 22, Moondog. 